Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. In this episode we are looking at the newly released book The Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics by Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields and we are very fortunate to be joined by Angie Maxwell. Hi Angie, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you all for having me. Angie, can you introduce the Long Southern Strategy and set the scene for our audience? Sure. Um, well, the Southern Strategy, I like to call it the short Southern Strategy that that most Americans know. And I think, you know, folks interested in American politics across the, across the world know is the story about how after the 1964 Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. passes, the Republican Party decides to try to win over, you know, Southern white voters who had been voting with the Democratic Party since, you know, before the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. But expecting that that many are going to be upset about the changes that the Civil Rights Act will bring. They think this provides an opportunity to kind of play to those white, you know, racial fears, Um And they do so under Barry Goldwater in 1964, and then again with Richard Nixon in 68 and 1972, and then as the story goes, the South turns red. But we kind of cut off the story too short um, prematurely because in 1976, uh, Democrat Jimmy Carter wins the South back for the Democratic Party. Um, And Bill Clinton is going to win several Southern states again in 1992 and 1996. So when we pan out and kind of, you know, take a longer perspective and see what else the GOP, what other decisions they made in order to try to kind of, you know, solidify or win back voters um, in the South that they, you know, kept losing. And that's where we get this idea of the long Southern strategy. And it turns out it's not just going to be kind of white racial angst that they play to. Um, They continue to do that and they morph it uh, and evolve it in different ways, but they also add to it, you know, appeals to traditional gender roles and kind of anti-feminism, which is embraced by a lot of Southern white men and Southern white women, which is critical and then also a decision to really uh, align themselves with Christian fundamentalist evangelicals, uh, white Christian fundamentalist evangelicals in the South. And together, you know, hitting all of those buttons, all of those dog whistles is what eventually solidifies the South in this kind of Republican camp. Fantastic. Uh, Toby, did you have any specific uh, follow-up questions for Angie? I think it's um, interesting that you sort of center the characters of Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon. Could you tell me the role that they played in the Southern strategy? Absolutely. Well, it's it's complicated because in 1964, Goldwater, you know, is fighting for the Republican nomination, and and this is really important. 
at each one of the each time the GOP decides to reach out to these Southern white voters and kind of um, try to exploit one of these kind of cultural cleavages, um, it's not it's not unanimous by any means. I mean, in 1964 at the Republican National Convention, there's a huge fight between the Rockefeller Republicans, which are very pro-civil rights, and the Goldwater side of things, right? And um, Goldwater wins out and gets that nomination. Now, Goldwater had voted against the Civil Rights Act, so just about a month before the convention. Now, he would say that he voted against it for um, reasons having to do with big government and you know, the federal government's role in, you know, legislating morality, right? But his surrogates and what he actually does when he campaigns in the South on his kind of final swing and called Operation Dixie is really play up um, the fact that he voted against it. Strom Thurmond, who's a senator from South Carolina and a very hardcore segregationist, flips his party identification from Democrat to Republican in 1964 and goes on the stump for Goldwater. And so it's very clear when you look at Goldwater's campaign in the South that they were not pulling any punches about this kind of appeal to racial animus. However, Goldwater only wins five Southern states, and they're deep South states. Um, He wins Mississippi by 87% of the vote. I mean, that's a, a state that had been voting Democrat you know, forever. So that's a radical, radical shift. Now, other than those five deep South states, Goldwater only wins one other state, and that's Arizona, his home state. Uh So Republicans um, kind of go back to the drawing board, and there's a debate about, was that a smart, you know, strategy? If you're going to go that hard core on some of the, that overt on some of the racial appeals, are you going to then lose kind of peripheral South states or maybe even folks that are just uncomfortable with it being that overt, uh, regardless of how they maybe feel internally. And so Nixon in 1968, who I'm sure you guys remember, you know, ran in 1960 Mm -hmm. against JFK. And when he ran in 1960 as a Republican, he ran on a pro-civil rights plank. Uh So when you look at 1960 Nixon and 1968 Nixon, they're almost, you know, they're really difficult to reconcile, right? Hard to, almost impossible to recognize 1968 Nixon. Uh But Nixon decides that Goldwater's strategy is useful if it gets tweaked. So third party candidate George Wallace, who's the segregationist governor of Alabama, jumps in the race. Uh For the third, as a third party candidate. And so Nixon knows, um, and Nixon's team, that Wallace is going to win like the hardliners, right? He's going to win those hardcore segregationists. So Nixon decides to really code the language that he uses about race, um, hoping that he can appeal to kind of what, what becomes called the silent majority. So he couches the phrasing in terms of like law and order and this, you know, the war gets drugs. And we know now from his papers how strategic that was, right? And it, yeah. it it's successful. You know, he picks up most of the peripheral Southern states. Um, 
and does the same thing in 1972. And that's kind of where we, you know, close off, you know, what I call the short Southern strategy. Would you say that the Richard Nixon of 1960 was any more authentic than the one of 68? Or was it simply that the 1960 more pro-civil rights Nixon was just, that's the message he kind of had to tow at the time? Do you think either one of them was more legitimate than the other one? You know, that's a great question. It's it's really hard to... And there's a lot of characters like that during this period of time where you look back at the things they said and wrote and it's really hard to figure out what were they inside, right? Mm-hmm. Was it... They were just kind of going along with what the party was doing or... Yeah. Was there a more authentic them coming out? And the truth is with Nixon, I don't know what his intentions were (laughs) inside. Um, But what's interesting is his party changes. You know, in the 1950s and early 60s, the Republican Party and Democratic Party almost match on their platforms on civil rights. We really don't know which party's going to go one way or the other. And in fact, no party had to. They could have both mm-hmm. stayed pro-civil rights and just debated how to go about implementing change, right? Yeah. Um, and so Nixon is reflecting his party both in 60 and in 68, right? And in some sense, the Republican Party's changing because the Democratic Party's changing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, LBJ decides to sign that Civil Rights Act and famously says, we're going to lose the South, you mm-hmm. know, for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so is the is the RNC pivoting off of off of, you know, taking the opposite position of Democrats to a degree? I mean, there was a book that came out in 1964 by Phyllis Schlafly, who comes up later during the anti-ER equal rights amendment campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, a book Phyllis Schlafly wrote and self-published called A Choice, Not an Echo. And in it, Schlafly, who is a, you know, long-term Republican, says the Republican Party is simply offering up, I'm paraphrasing here, um, kind of democrat light candidates. So Mm -hmm. they're not distinguishing themselves enough. So voters do not know how to make a choice, right, between these candidates because they, they agree too much. And she says we need to have a choice, not an echo, right? And so mm-hmm. Goldwater adopts that as a slogan, a choice, not an echo. Mm-hmm. And the RNC kind of says, you know, we really need to, if Democrats are going to go this way, we need to go this way, right? We need to go the opposite direction. And yeah. um, so they kind of, they do the, you know, they definitely do this together, right? And and there's a lot of resistance. in the On the Democratic side, you've got these Southern white voters who are really upset with LBJ and on the Republican side, you've got, you know, pro civil rights Republicans really upset that Goldwater is embracing um, the idea of, you know, targeting Southern white voters that are upset about integration. Angie, do you think that because there is the, the idea of the short Southern strategy, but I think a main criticism of the short Southern strategy is the idea that, Actually, it isn't a southern strategy at all. It's a suburban strategy that Nixon used. Because you could see that, um, especially because George Wallace was so virulently you know, anti-integration, um, 
you can see that deep southern states went for Wallace in in 68, but some more border states went for Nixon. And it, and there is the idea, I think it's put out by historians like Kevin Cruz, that it, it was almost like the corporate suburban um of America that really caused this shift in the Republican Party. What what would you say to that? Well, I don't think I mean Kevin's book White Flight on Atlanta, you know, Atlanta's a very specific case. Matt Lasseter's written a lot about, you know, kind of the no, the the notion that this is a suburban strategy. And here's 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 what's complicated there. The states that Goldwater wins and the states that George Wallace wins. They're not, they're states we typically think of as like rural, right? But they're mm-hmm. not necessarily rural, not, not, not completely. They just have the highest concentration of African-American voters, right? Mm-hmm. And African-American population. They're what we call the black belt. Um, not because of the racial implications, because that's where the soil was so rich and that's where slavery developed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back all the way to political scientist V.O. Key in 1949, who writes a famous book called Southern Politics in State and Nation and, you know, really addresses what's called the Black Belt Thesis, which is those folks, for those folks, a white elite being able to oppress the masses is so difficult because the numbers are not in their favor at all, right? They're terrified of like class alliances and the lower income levels between whites and blacks. And mm-hmm. so the hierarchy they have to create and how diligent they have to be about maintaining their power, you know, is just makes them hyper-conscious to any gradual, any change they think is like a slippery slope, right? Now, this suburban strategy concept that like, oh, this is how Republicans win folks. Well, then you have to really think about why the suburbs are developing. Are they just developing because of kind of a corporate America and sprawl? They're developing at a, at, because of white flight. They're developing so that people can move to neighborhoods where there's going to be maintained segregated schools, where they're going to have private, you know, private schools crop up all through the South after Brown v. Board in order to maintain, you know, segregated schools. I mean, there's a reason we call it kind of white flight. So it's it's very hard to disentangle those two things. Um, the idea that you can kind of look at class and economic issues separate from racial issues um, is just not something that is easily done or it, is you, perhaps even possible. Because in your book, you set it up as you, you have the South and there are, especially under Nixon's tenure, there's there's bushing issues and there's other issues to do with integration that are, that are very important at the time. And you have a Southern population that wants to preserve the old ways that it had before. But, but then you have people in the Sun Belt, people in California as well, who kind of have the same politics, the same politics when it comes to regulation, the same politics when it comes to uh laws that w- will positively discriminate for African-Americans, things like Af- um, affirmative action. But how, how are you able to split the two? Oh, it's a great question. Well, one of the things that we do in this book that is mm-hmm. kind of unique is that we look at geography, so South versus non-South, but we also look at 
people who identify as Southern, right? And there's a lot of people who identify as Southern across this country. So that's one piece of it. The second idea is that it was a strategy in the sense of an electoral map strategy, right? So Republicans are looking at the map saying, where can we build a new base? Where can we pick up voters? Mm -hmm. And the South had been this block for the Democrats for so long. And Eisenhower's popularity in the 50s had picked off a few rim states. And after, and the, just the anger and the dissatisfaction with, you know, LBJ signing the Civil Rights Act, just, you know, even, in, even as far back as 1948, when Southern Democrats, you know, a lot of them break off and run a third-party candidate, um, Strom Thurmond, for the Dixiecrats. Now, they come back into the Democratic fold, but... It's clear there's 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 you know cracks in that solid South, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a strategy to win the win the map, but it doesn't mean that the appeal doesn't um, you know work with people in pockets throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So it's yeah. just the sheer number of people that are upset about this. The density in the southern states is greater, and that's the states they're wanting to win. But it doesn't mean that it's limited. I mean, you know, racism and support for, you know, segregation, all that. I mean, it has no geographic boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it does. It, abs- it absolutely appeals in places way beyond the South, particularly as these issues like busing and stuff explode in urban areas. Um, you, you mentioned um, about the, the idea of Nixon adopting a stance of benign neglect when it comes to civil rights uh, enforcement. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, <clears throat> when Nixon's running um, for the nomination, um, for the Republican Party nomination, you know, there's this, there's kind of a late surge um, from an unknown candidate at the time, or I guess unknown nationally, you know, Ronald Reagan, who people think is, you know, a true conservative, right? Um, and Strom Thurmond gathers up these kind of Democrats that have flipped to Republican or and are at the RNC early on and says, I know you're, I know you think you, you know, you want to cast for Reagan, you think he's a true conservative, but I'm telling you, Nixon has said that he will not enforce you know, the civil rights policies. He won't use, you know, like an Eisenhower sending in the troops, right, to Little Rock Central High School. And we don't know when that deal was struck. I mean, there's arguments that, you know, and we know that Strom Thurmond and Nixon sit down in a hotel room in Atlanta Mm -hmm. early in his campaign. Um, There's debate over what happens there. But right after that, you know, Strom Thurmond goes on the stump for Nixon and really pushes that he is because because Strom Thurmond knows Wallace is not going to win, right? He knows Wallace is just going to pick up a few deep South states, but they are really concerned that these changes, which you know were kind of an abstraction to a degree, are going to really start being implemented and enforced, and they're terrified of the Democrats winning, and so they strike that kind of deal. So, so you say that in '48, um, sort of when Humphrey spoke about civil rights, these things were a, an abstraction, but now they were really taking shape. Yeah, I think when I mean 
what the Democratic, what the Dixiecrats were trying to do in 48 is that, you know, not only was Humphrey speaking about that, but like, you know, Harry Truman had integrated the army by executive order. He had given the first speech to the NAACP by a Mm -hmm. president and had said, you know, by Americans, I mean, all Americans. I mean, it was very clear in his rhetoric. And the Demar- the Dixiecrats just, when Truman got the nomination, they, they walked out of the convention and they said they're going to run their own person. And I think what, th- I'm guessing what they thought was that, you know, that would really cripple the Democratic Party. And they would see in that moment, hey, you can't win without the South, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, Truman still does, barely, but he still does. And so they're kind of stuck for a few years in this kind of purgatory where they feel like the National Democratic Party is abandoning them, but there's no infrastructure for the Republican Party in the South, like at the local and state level, Uh hardly at all. So there's this kind of in-between place and they, and Republicans are aware of that. Um, And so it's in that, it's in that kind of gray area where we start seeing ideas, strategies, assessments of the demographics, like what's going to work. And, you know, the folks in the GOP who really wanted to pursue breaking up that solid South, you know, they just won out in their own party against a lot of opposition. And do you think this sort of all comes together in Kevin Phillips' analysis of the situation in the emerging Republican majority. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Phillips, I mean, it's a famous book, you know, 50-year anniversary. There's actually a great piece on it by Kevin Cruz in The Atlantic last week um, about the anniversary of that book. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Kevin Cruz does, I mean, um, Kevin Phillips does kind of draw it all together. I mean, it predates when that book comes out. I mean, it's already very much being talked about and thought through. And, and that book is very controversial, Because, like I said, there were a whole lot of Republicans who are thinking, you know, this is not a good move. And Mm -hmm. and they and and in a sense, when Jimmy Carter wins the South back in 1976, there's a little bit of see, you know. This is not as easy as it looks because the culture was of the white South was so tied to the Democratic Party. It's not an easy ideological thing, you know, thing to break. When you think about now people who feel so strongly Democrat or so strongly Republican, and can you envision yourself voting for the opposite party or changing party ID? Really Uh tough, you know, thing to do. Um, And so Kevin Phillips is laying out that it's the future and this is what we should do. And there's a lot of opposition to that, but it wins out. But so then we go from the short Southern strategy to, I think, the long Southern strategy, because I don't know if many people know that even in the 70s, you have both parties supporting the uh, Equal Rights Amendment for women, mm-hmm. even though both parties are against abortion. There's a sense in which that I, I think like in many ways with um sort of attitudes to the to Latin American demo, demo, uh, demographics in the noughties. There's, there's this idea that they, they might go to either party. 
mm-hmm. and that there's this 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 um a feminism this wave of feminism is going to be something that's inevitable and irresistible really so yeah could you talk about sure. that sure well and, and i just want to clarify like both parties weren't um vocally against abortion um until my, until later on until you really get to you know the the 19 till to the 1980 election mm. partially because you know it you know roe v wade 73 so you know there might be people who personally you know are against it but it becomes a big political issue after of course it's legalized right yeah, so, but J- gerald ford is against it but is uh hw bush he's not against it or well h yes hw is but he but like for example reagan had signed ronald reagan when he was governor of california had signed in a you know a bill allowing certain types of abortion in the state and you know gerald ford said he was kind of personally against it his wife was not i mean his mm-hmm. wife was um pro choice right uh betty ford it's really mixed it's it's it we get a lot of politicians during that early period saying the early 70s saying, ah, you know, I don't, I wouldn't do it personally, but, you know, maybe this, it should be left up to the states. You know, they're just hedging, right? Even Jimmy Carter's record on it is really all over the place. Um, the things so, so he'd say publicly. You think it's hedging as opposed to sort of real um, sort of indoctrination into whether no, I, I, I shouldn't say hedging I, that may, I think that was authentically how people felt you yeah, know? Okay. I, I do I think it was authentically how people felt they were hedging on taking a political side mm-hmm. I guess is what I mean but it's because it hadn't been an issue that people had to take a big side on yet right it hadn't come to kind of okay now it's legalized what does this mean and, ve- and it, it is it is very deeply tied to feminism and the equal rights amendment. Um, and we see that because the numbers, um, kind of bear it out. So both the Republican party and democratic party had the equal rights amendment or some version of it in their platform for decades. The Republicans first put it in, in 1940, 40, right now in 1972, it passes 71, it passes the Senate. 72, it passes the House. Um, I might have that reversed. But it passes through Congress over a course of about four months, um, late 71, early 72. And it is it, it passes by like upper 90% of the vote. I mean, it's crazy. There's mm-hmm. like 25 no votes in the, in the U.S. House. That's it. Bipartisan support completely. You have... A large number of, you know, Republican feminists and Democrat feminists. What happens is that in 1972, Phyllis Schlafly, who I mentioned before, starts uh, an organization called Stop ERA, and Stop ERA stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges. And what Schlafly said is that, you know, the the Equal Rights Amendment is not about choice. It is going to force women to be men. It's going to force women to put to work, to put their children in government daycare, mm-hmm. to serve on the front lines. You know, she really kind of co-ops the language of feminism, which was supposed to be about choice, and mm-hmm. really depicts it as a mandate. And then she she posits 
her views, this kind of anti-feminism, um, these traditional gender roles as, you know, a false equivalency to feminism, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that because it's an equal, equally valid ideology to her, it deserves equal time and equal seats on all government women's commissions. So during this same period of time, there is, you know, the International Women's Year, IWY, commissions that are forming all across the country in every state looking at women's issues. And they're pretty much run by feminists in the early years. Mm-hmm. But Schlafly organizes anti-ERA folks to show up at those commission meetings in Mississippi, South Carolina, Arkansas, and to, you know, vote the feminists out, to vote against their platforms. Well, this really shocks the feminists. I mean, it comes out of nowhere, they feel like. Because, yes, feminism is choice, but it's a, it's a lot of, you know, working, you know, working women you know, who are leading the charge. And so these conservative, newly organized women, a lot of them religious, white women, in the South, you know, kind of went out. In, um, in 1977, there's a national women's, you know, conference. The IWI has its national women's conference in Houston. And, you know, there's both, Rosalind Carter, the, you know, current first ladies there and Betty Ford, the former first ladies there, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, Dr. King, Coretta Scott King's there. It, it's, it's a huge event, Republican and Democrat, nonpartisan, um, but pro ERA. Phyllis Schlafly holds a counter rally also in Houston and 20,000 women show up. A lot of them, Southern white women who got on church buses and their slogan is family values. Now, the Republican Party takes notice of this. And, and you, you used to say that there's um, some polling that oh, Reagan, yeah. the Reagan uh, administration or oh, the Reagan presidential campaign did, to, because I think many of them had felt like you had just stated that it was inevitable, but then they started mm-hmm. polling women and then disaggregating women into different groups and what what were those groups that's a that's a great question so they do the republican party is way ahead of the democratic party on this kind of deep dive polling at this point um and richard worthen who's was one of um you know reagan's pollsters he notices um i mean they all see the schlafly's pull before they even start polling, they see it. And the reason why is because in the very first year that the ERA is after it's passed through Congress, they give it a seven-year window for ratification. It needs 38 states to ratify it. Mm-hmm. In the first year, it ratifies thir- 30 states do it, 30 in a year. So there, I mean, it just feels inevitable, right? You're almost there. And then when Schlafly's organization gets going and really picks up momentum, it just absolutely stalls. You even have states like Tennessee try to rescind their ratification. And so, and you can watch public opinion attitudes on the Equal Rights Amendment just start tanking, particularly among Southern white women. I mean, they drop dramatically. People don't ever look at it and break it down by South and non-South, but that's what happens, right? 
So they're seeing that and they're polling on the ERA. And then also right after the 1980 election, when there's real confusion about like why Reagan won, Worthen um, polls 45,000 American women. It's how he, uh, Elizabeth Dole helps them head it up. And they divide these women into 64 categories. Um, and they give them names like Nancy's and Betty's and Helen's. And they realize that, you know what, I, I feel like we still don't um, fully appreciate is, is just how different women are. Mm-hmm. And they realize that white married women, particularly white women living in the South, you know, are really repelled by the ERA. They don't like feminists. They don't identify as feminists. And, and why that is, is a whole other part of the story. Um, but but they, they, they see it. And so they realize dropping the ERA from their platform, as shocking as it is to, and as devastating as it is to a lot of Republican feminists, that they're not going to lose votes over it. In fact, they're probably going to gain some in the strategic places they're wanting to gain people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we still haven't quite figured that out. Um, I mentioned in, in, a, in later sections in the book that even now in 2016, I mean, in the 2016 election, I remember seeing so many people say, well, you know, there's going to be women. There's even going to be Republican women that cross over for Hillary Clinton. He's the first woman at the top of the ticket, right? Yeah. Well, Hillary Clinton won white women outside of the South by two points. She lost to Trump among white women in the South by 25. Well, this is really interesting because I because I think about, again, the, the sort of suburban view of this thing and, and the suburban sort of Fordist uh, suburban life. There's a division of labor. And but then there's a sort of growing sense that, you know, the women are individuals and women are sort of discovering themselves outside of the that sort of domestic scene. Mm-hmm. But you but in your book, especially in the in the South, it doesn't seem like that's happening at all. It seems like there's a there a counter revolution against this feminine or feminist ideal, and it's it it seems like the because there's a really interesting section when you, you talked about um, women or so seven women were together in some uh, it was a, a I think it was a parade and there was like a a field of white Southern girls Mm -hmm. and they were set up like magnolias, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of this pristine pedestal that not only was the reality, but that Southern women actually aspired to, which Mm -hmm. is really interesting. Um, I mean, this kind of cult, this ideal, this theory about this kind of ideal of Southern white womanhood, it really dates back before the Civil War. I mean, it's an antebellum construct mm-hmm. where Southern white women, kind of what's held up as this ideal, is, are kind of on a pedestal. They are they need to be taken care of. They're definitely confined to the home. Um, they don't need to worry about kind of the events of the day. Um, and they need to be protected from black men who they are taught to fear, right? And that construct is necessary if you are a white male who is in the elite trying to justify kind of white supremacy, particularly in its most violent manifestations. 
So chivalry kind of becomes this faux justification for, and that women have to be protected for kind of the violence against black men. Now that's, that's a super old construct. Is that exactly what it is now? No, it, it, it's just that the institutional structure that develops because women are held to that standard yeah. is different in the South. So whether it's beauty pageants or sororities or finishing schools or ladies clubs, you don't see the same kind of women's political involvement or reform groups or things like that develop. I mean, if you're a Southern white elite lady after Reconstruction, early turn of the century, you might be involved with like the Confederate, you know, memorials and helping establish those or kind of junior league type historic preservation. But you're not, you know, running for political office. Right. Yeah, it, Even the suffrage, I mean, suffrage for women fails in every Southern state, but Texas, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Oh, wow. Everyone. It fails in everyone. The Equal Rights Amendment fails in every Southern state except for Texas and Tennessee. That's it. it re it's really captured in that. Have you ever seen Gone with the Winds? So oh, yeah. Uh, it was a time of knights and ladies, masters and slaves, you know. It's just... mm -hmm. And so the culture is created for that. And it's so when you say suburban strategy, right, one of the things I think that, you know, unless you kind of grow up and live in that culture, it's really hard to see is that the suburbs in a lot of places in the South are 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 women who stay at home. You know, they're 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 large kind of homes and they're in the suburbs and the women are not working right um and that's an absolute choice and women should have that choice you know that's yeah. to each family but but the suburbs are not the same thing as you know a suburb developing because you know outside of you know Washington DC and Vir northern virginia right with two you know working you know career um, people in the family, you know, the suburbs aren't the same thing everywhere, right? And the suburbs in Arkansas are a lot of stay at home, you know, women. And for the women who can't, who have to work, it's somewhat aspirational, right? Which you, we can understand because if they're working a job that's just doesn't have a path towards advancement, you know, and the idea they're putting kids in daycare and they're missing that part of their life. And it's maybe a, you know, okay job, but it's not really a career. Right. Yeah. Um, then the idea that uh, the spat, the husband could make enough money that they did not have to work is very appealing. Right. Um, and I, and, I, and I becomes, definitely have empathy uh, with that because I see it all the time and becomes a status symbol as well. Doesn't it? it it's status. So stop taking our privileges that Schlafly's, you know, Schlafly's, you know, acronym for Stop ERA is very much that women are kind of taught that they're different and special than men, right? And they need to be taken care of and protected. And I think there are, I think there's some lovely pieces of that, you know, um, not condemning it for cloth. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I, I do have empathy for it. It's just <laughs> that 
We have not studied it. There is nothing on Southern white women and their votes. You did say that among uh, people who were going to university in the South, you did see these views expressed when people were uh, doing some ethnic research with them, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yep. You see that, and it, what happens is that, you know, women who attain a high level of education in the South, you know, we do to some degree start to see these attitudes shift a little, and it's because they perhaps feel less dependent, right, um, on men or see some kind of other opportunity. But what it's created over time that we have not looked at is how does that, you know, that culture, that that ideal of Southern white womanhood, how does that translate into politics, right? And what happens is there, if you're invested in that world and then you see women entering politics and entering the workforce and having these kind of career ambitions, right? There's a distrust of that. There is like, that is not like me, right? And we looked at a series of questions called the modern sexism scale. It's a psychology scale, but it asks, um, you know, about this kind of resentment and distrust of, you know, ambitious and working women. And the numbers are off the charts. You know, they were off the charts in 2012. We had them. And then in 2016, of course, we had the opportunity to look and see how they affected a woman candidate or two women candidates with Jill Stein also. And it's a it's a huge piece of the puzzle. And it's not a is... women can't do it. It's a we don't like women who do. Yeah. So, so women who enter into politics, they usually enter in as, you know, if their husband had died or things like that. Right. And what's quite interesting is that the way the Republicans go about it is that in the 70s, you have someone like Betty Ford, who is an actualized woman who's who supports all of these um, feminists, um, all these fem- in, new feminist policies. And then you have Elizabeth Dole, who was also an incredibly intelligent woman incredibly but is presented as a southern belle elizabeth dole is one of the, just an incredibly accomplished human being i mean broke all kinds of barriers i mean she was like student body president at duke university in the 1950s i mean oh, wow. she's amazing but when her husband runs and she gives her speech at the rnc convention you know People just fall in love with her because she is very much um, playing that kind of, you know, role of a supporting spouse. Now, they like her so much that there's talk about her running. So when she considers that and launches an exploratory committee, because her popularity is so high among Republicans in the South who flipped, you know, to Republican, you know, a lot of them by this point. You know, they like her, but they don't give her any money, you know. So it's this it's this kind of there's likability there and we're comfortable with that. But we don't take it seriously. Right. So that's the needle that, you know, women thread. Um, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, someone likability is a, an issue, but taking her seriously, not an issue. People take her very seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of that gets that's kind of a side effect of some of this modern sexism, but we just have not studied these 
kind of anti-feminist, you know, women in America. I mean, there, I will say there have been one of the most important books on it just came out in 2017. Um, Marjorie Spruill's it's called divided. We stand and she can reconstructs, you know, the history of those IWI meetings and commissions and how the anti ERA supporters take them over and how it culminates in these two big conventions and how the Republicans see it. I mean, it's a, it's a, such an important book. I, I couldn't write this book without her book, um, you know, coming out and, but we just have kind of, um, I don't know, it somehow gets overlooked or left out of the story. And it gets overlooked degree. by both the political scientists and historians and uh, to some extent by the Democratic Party, because a lot of Democrats have um, thought about this this myth of the gender gap between mm-hmm. um, the sexes in, in terms of their voting patterns. But it's, it's quite clear that um, Southern white women are one of the most virulent supporters of the Republican Party and have been for quite a while. They have. And so when you talk about, I mean, the thing about the gender gap that's so interesting, and it's part of this story, too, because... In 1980, when Ronald Reagan wins, so Republicans are successful. They pull the South back, right, from Jimmy Carter. The day after the election, or I think it's three days after the election, there's, you know, all this kind of postmortem on the election in the newspaper. And some of the leading feminists, like um, the head of NOW, the National Organization of Women, um, Eleanor Smeal, says... It was abs. This was not a referendum on women. She was like, "This is about the economy." Just really denies it, and part of that is because, you know, there's two years left on the extension to ratify the ERA. I mean, the last thing they want feminists to think is like, "This is, you know, the fight is over." Right? They don't want to lose morale. But there are others that said, "I think this was about women," and if you start digging into the numbers you see that among, you know, women who supported the ERA versus women who did not, there's like almost a 40-point difference in who they voted for. So the anti-ERA women voted for Reagan. And that was there. It's just we we didn't, we kind of didn't want to hear it. What we, what, we, what we latched onto instead is the gender gap. So the gender gap, the way it's measured, the way it's really measured, is in 1980 when it becomes a thing, is the percent of women who voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980, Democrat, minus the percent of men who voted for Jimmy Carter in 1980. Mm-hmm. And more women voted for him than men voted for him. And so the feminists really jump on that statistic. Of course they should, because... They're terrified that the Democratic Party is going to abandon the Equal Rights Amendment like the Republican Party did. So they're saying to Democrat Democratic leadership, look, more women are this part. This party has to pay attention to women. All right. But this at the exact same time that they noticed that statistic. The media also notices that in 1980, more women voted overall in the election by just a little bit. And that's a big deal because it had not been that way. And the two things get conflated. 
they get misunderstood. They kind of just get oversimplified. If more women voted than men and more women voted for Jimmy Carter than men voted for Jimmy Carter, then women must lean Democratic, right? Mm-hmm. Except for you can have 30% of women vote for Jimmy Carter and 20% of men vote for Jimmy Carter, and you've got a 10-point gender gap, and everybody voted for Ronald Reagan. <sighs> so even though there was a gender gap for Carter, more women voted for Reagan. There's a difference between a gender gap in a party in support for a candidate and like the women's vote, right? Did it go Republican yeah. or Democrat? They're two different things. And so Completely. you're saying that it's it was really expedient that the women's movement used that in order to sort of ext- uh, extend their power within the Democratic Party because they were playing I mean, on the defensive. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that the that the I mean, it was an intra-party measure, right? And that's where they were making the argument within the party. So I, I'm not saying it was like disingenuous or something. It's just that it gets, you know, coverage of the gender gap goes from like the phrase doesn't exist to like the media is really obsessed with it, you know. And it creates this idea Reagan's got this woman problem. But Reagan doesn't have a woman problem. Reagan has a problem among African-American women who are overwhelmingly voting Democratic. Mm-hmm. But among white women, you know, he's winning. And the the problem with that is that we continue to not, to kind of talk about women monolithically, right? We still say, we're, we're better now about at least, you know, disaggregating it by race and saying, okay, white women... And African-American, African-American women vote overwhelmingly Democrat, I mean, to the like 90-something percent. And white women, you know, they lean Democrat. But they don't in the South. And so when you, when you don't disaggregate it by region, you actually dampen the gender gap. Does that make sense? I mean, you, you're like muting it mm-hmm. um, because it, it does very much exist outside of the South. It's just that it's, it's much different in these states down here. Yeah, because essentially um, only, tw- you know, 22% of Southern white women voted for Clinton. So it's, it's clear that that sort of modern sexism score that you were using mm-hmm. very much captures the way the... And that, that kind of anti-ERA spirit really becomes kind of, gets expressed in our current days in this modern sexism, right? Yeah. Um, just this distrust... Of, of of feminism, you know, it's a big holdover. So even in even in Georgia, when Stacey Abrams ran for governor, you know, seventy five percent of white women did not vote for her. And and the the thing is, is like we just have to know that so that you know, the co- coalitions can be built, you know, based on those values instead of just looking at women versus men. I mean, there's a whole bunch of pro ERA, low modern sexism, feminist men who would be useful in a progressive coalition if that's what you're trying to build. Right. And you guys have done this really granularly by picking apart the, the numbers yes. and, and, and in a way that I don't think that the suburban angle has really done. Uh, Simon, do you have um, questions pertaining to religion. 
Yeah, so we're heading towards the iron mark now. So there was just um, uh, maybe a couple of things wanted to sure. touch on outside of that. Oh, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, the the role of religion within the GOP. Could you maybe explain a little bit how that's kind of developed and evolved over the years, and maybe in particular to relation to the the Southern strategy? Absolutely. So part of the kind of it's, it, it happens a little bit simultaneously, though it takes off later, is an offshoot of this ERA fight is, of course, this notion of family values, right? And the abortion issue becomes very politicized, as does, you know, gay rights. Um, you know, that is very much an offshoot of kind of feminists being depicted as all lesbians, right? And the... In 1979, in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest denomination in the South, the fundamentalists of that denomination take over the leadership. Um, before that, a mostly, you mostly had moderate Baptists in charge of the Southern Baptist Convention, but the fundamentalists take it over and they hold it. And over the next 10 years, over the next decade, they replace you know, fundamentalist believers into every position of authority on the committees and into the majority. And a lot of moderate Baptists, you know, feel like the organization went far to the right. Some of them leave, um, pretty devastated leave, um, and others just kind of adopt these more fundamentalist attitudes. At the same time, the SBC starts, you know, building a bridge to the Republican Party. You know, they had liked they they'd kind of liked Jimmy Carter in 76 because he was a Southern Baptist. Mm. But then they're very disappointed because he doesn't really do anything for them. So they like mm -hmm. Reagan. But then they also think Reagan just kind of pays lip service to what they like, that it's just superficial. They run their own candidate, you know, under this kind of moral majority Christian coalition in Pat Robertson in the primaries in 88. Um and so Robinson does really badly, right? He or... does badly. I mean, he picks up somebody doesn't enough. And so it's at that point that they really realize, like, they're not big enough as a standalone. Um, and so they're going to have to fight kind of within the GOP. And the GOP gets nervous about, even though they, you know, successfully get H.W. Bush renominate, you know, nominated in 1988 for the top of the ticket. They're nervous about if that group breaks off, right? And so they start really catering to them a lot more, taking up their issues, pushing for it, you know, really taking hardcore pro-life stances. Um, in the night in when George W. Bush runs, um, Karl Rove puts, you know, gay marriage amendments on the ballots in states. Um, works to do that so that, you know, those evangelical voters will go to the polls, right? Um, they, they, they really, and, and they even kind of start talking about our foreign policy in terms of this, with this hint of Christian nationalism. And that really takes these, like, religious voters who maybe really cared about abortion and gay rights and transforms them into just kind of all-out Republicans on everything, whether it's climate change, 
denial of science, foreign policy, all of it. Um, so, and so, so now evangelicals, now what we find is that they're just hardcore politicos. You know, somehow mm. we think because they're religious, they're going to, you know, act differently politically. They're not going to yeah. act for their self-interest. They're going to hold politicians to this like higher moral standard. What was the difference in the appeal from, say, Jimmy Carter, who, you know, is a favorite son, uh, he's evangelical, and it it does, um, in in some sense, you know, if you take take Jimmy Carter's foreign policy, there is a sense in which that his religion is affecting him. But what's the difference between that and then, say, because George Bush is a character that really comes out, Mm -hmm. and it really comes out in contrast to Jimmy Carter and his own father, like, he actually had a a personal um, sort of testimony and, and transformation in his religious life that really makes him a figure that um, those c- kinds of people can gravitate towards. He, he, he absolutely does. I mean, I think for both of them, their religious faith was very authentic. Mm-hmm. It's the difference in what they think the government's role in it should be. So what frustrated evangelicals is that Jimmy Carter was one of them but that he believed in a separation of church and state. And so he wouldn't, he wouldn't implement things they wanted. It might've been affecting him at this kind of like personal belief level, but he Mm -hmm. wouldn't start their policies. Right. He wouldn't like Whereas George W. Bush pushes for funded faith-based initiatives, right? Let's put government money in the hands of churches. If they're doing, you know, good works in the community. I mean, Mm -hmm. really shifts it into um my pol- my my views my personal views and my denominational affiliation are going to mix with the policies that my administration promotes and then even and the, for, foreign policy becomes a crusade for, for god mm-hmm. as, as well but it gets then talked you, about that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then you have you have this you have uh, in many ways a genuine christian um revival in the political sphere but how does that because there's some people that you you polled and their christianity wasn't as explicit they were more cultural christians but they're Mm -hmm. also in this in this big base of uh the long southern strategy so how how do they come that's right so we there have been other people that were talking in 2016 about something called like cult you know, for lack of better phrase, like cultural Christians versus like these creedal Christians. So there are people who, you know, the theology is everything. The authenticity does still matter. So in a primary, they're going to vote for a Ted Cruz or a John Kasich because they believe they've got the real credentials, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not to say that all just you know, I mean, it really does matter to a lot of people at this deep place. Whereas, and some of them so much so they wouldn't cross over for Trump, though it's a very small number, right? But you have others for whom, you know, the particularly in the South, you know, the the Christianity is very much part of their social life, right? So the church is like the central you know, institution in the town and it's part of your status. It's part of your life. You know, it's where you see people. It's, it's, it's social and, you know, religious at the same time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those ministers really, 
you know, they've, they've handed out voter guides and they've, you oh, know, wow. oh yeah, they've just, you know, for years they had Justice Sunday where they would preach about the Supreme Court, you know, and they would organize, you know, pews to the polls in states where you could vote on Sundays, right? So they had an organized group that's at their attention every Sunday and sometimes more more than once a week, depending on the denomination, that is used to tithing, is used to giving money. Um, all of that made it like a ready-made institution that's easy, easy to politicize. Hmm. And it used to be that kind of ministers wouldn't cross that line, right? But as they're convinced that it's for the good of the country, and as they're convinced that Christians, there's a war on Christianity. And that's a big piece of this long Southern strategy is the GOP does tap into these attitudes, but they also perpetuate them. They pour gasoline on them and they make people feel like there's a war on whites, a war on men, a war on Christians to a degree that it intensifies people's anxieties, but it also drives people to vote, right? So even yeah. if they don't like Donald Trump, or maybe even they don't believe, maybe he's, you know, got these like authentic Christian, you know, history, they they, they think, you know, they definitely aren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. So they're going to roll to the polls for it, as long as he'll do what they want, which is, which is how you know, which is like a tr traditional political interest group. Yeah. We just fact, somehow uh, think because they're moral, because they're religious voter, right. That they're not going to tolerate certain things, but it's like the Tammany machine, almost it's machine. Yes. Policy. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. What I find interesting though, is, is because this all makes sense and it's, it's very organic. And I think, I, I think it's almost going back to like the whole thing is like the, the South is a, is, trying to preserve something you know trying to mm -hmm. preserve a tradition that's organic to the south but then there's one thing that that i don't that has always sort of been hard for me is that because if you look at the the northeast and you look at the, the social gospel there was an idea that um people had to be you know not only philanthropic but that that the church had um uh a mission to help people you know mm -hmm. in 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 the south and in, the, in this kind of christianity is it there's almost a feeling that you know like being poor is a is a bad thing and it isn't that um elites should or you know the church should go out and and help people or the church should defer that to the government it's almost an aspirational things so it, it's it's so the the tenets of christianity when it comes to charity almost seem to be a little bit obscured even though i like I'm, I'm sure these 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 um churches are very philanthropic but in terms of you know i don't know how would you characterize it well i i, I could i completely agree with you there have been tenets of that like the social gospel i mean such a big part i mean look at the catholic church in the south and the in the 1960s, the nuns are marching in civil rights parades. They're the ones helping immigrants, you know? I mean, they very much, it's a huge part of that tradition. And then we see so much of that social gospel go out the window when the social gospel comes in conflict 
with the political party that the church members and, and its platform that the church members are starting to support. So as they get politicized, the social gospel message becomes too entangled with, you know, arguments about welfare entitlement. I mean, Reagan's, I mean, Ron Reagan's the one that really pushes that. I mean, it really frames poverty as like, you know, criminal. I mean, the welfare abuse and the, you know, stories about the, you know, woman who's got all these different names and social security numbers and she's living high off the government and all of that. It really, um, it sets up like deserving and undeserving kind of people, right? And the social gospel does not does not do that. And so it it comes very much into conflict. And when you do see Christians now who are conflicted, when you see some of them starting to go, I do not like where this is going, this alliance with the Republican Party, you know, it that's the stuff they're talking about. They're talking about what the so what what happened to the social gospel. Where's our help for family, immigrant families being split up? Where is our stewards of the earth concept with the environment? I mean, you do see a little bit of that fracturing off. Not as much in the South, but you do see it. But how that all happens, I mean, it's like the thing that's so sad to me about the whole thing is that in order to kind of build an electoral map strategy, which which, which parties do, it's like the GOP tapped into the worst aspects of Southern white culture, the worst aspects. It's worse, you know, inclinations and impulses. And then rather than letting some of those, you know, dissolve over time as, as the passage of time can do and education can do, they just ramp them up. So now you're more concerned about the war on Christian affecting you than you are about you know, the others who the social gospel would serve, you know, and, and it, in doing that, they kind of nationalize the Southern thing. The Republican party doesn't just kind of go South. It kind of becomes Southern. And then it, it hits that all over the country where there are pockets of people that feel that way. When we look at white voters for Trump, if you are a kind of Christian fundamentalist and you identify kind of that way, or you express these modern sexist attitudes, or you express this racial resentment attitudes that we measure. And and by the way, most people are one of three or two of three. They're not all three. We lump it all together, but that and that's why they get offended, and, and rightly so, because they're not. But if you're at least one of those, it accounts for 95% of his white vote. 95%. Uh, that's us just over there now. So I was thinking perhaps we could um, ask just a, a final few questions of you, Andrew, if that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about the, the feedback you've had from sort of both sides of the political spectrum on this book and on this topic in general. Yeah, it's a great question. I've heard, um, I've heard from a handful of you know, I guess folks that would identify with you know, Republicans, um, who have been very, um, 
kind of sheepish but understanding and and frustrated you know there there's a lot of people in that party that um don't know what happened to it kind of you know they're lifelong republicans and they have been on that side that's saying don't go this place you know don't go here and they they fight for candidates like a john mccain right when he gets the nomination and john mccain wouldn't play this to this degree he wouldn't do it and the the problem is is that those people have lost now they may have lost for a bunch of different reasons but what that message does within the party is says see that doesn't work right you have to go hardcore and so they it's like they they keep fighting for their party but they keep kind of losing out and now this current um situation with trump is you know by far the most extreme you know and so i have heard folks saying you know that are trying to um you know i mean it's not an easy thing to hear you know this story but i also always try to remind people that you know this is what the democratic party does in the south for like the first half of the 20th century i mean maintaining its power to keep segregation it's not no party can um you know wash their hands of these kinds of tactics right um I have not heard a lot of criticism. I'm sure there will be some, but for the most part, what's what's kind of happened is that folks go, it's like all the pieces were kind of there, mm-hmm. but it's the hindsight that that I benefit from being able to look backwards that can kind of put it all together. So when you're writing in the 1980s, you're in the middle of the South turning from blue to red everything look everything's purple you're like this is amazing we're all purple states it looks totally different than when you're writing on this side of it you know so i have that benefit of hindsight but most people have gone that makes a whole lot of things in my life make sense you know from watching you know their parents change parties or their grandparents change parties or themselves or seeing their mothers so upset about the era and not wanting it to pass and not really understanding that to wondering why, you know, they had relatives who were moderate Baptists that left the church and just all having all those fragments and never really seeing and not knowing why people vote against their economic self-interest, you know, or why the 2018 midterms look completely different outside the South and inside the South. You know, it's a huge night of victories outside of the South. It's not in the South. Mm. You know, there's some. There's some. Um, and then, of course, I get lots of progressives. They're like, but what do we do? Right. You know, which is not the which isn't the, you know, cause of the book. Um, it, but when I when I'm asked that, I just usually say it took a really long time for the Republican Party to flip the South And it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of infrastructure that has to be rebuilt if Democrats want to be competitive there. And in places where that is happening, like Texas, even if somebody like Beto O'Rourke doesn't win on the first try, there's an enormous infrastructure that's been built. That stuff pays dividends. It just Mm -hmm. takes time. You know, it takes time. And it's hard to get people invested in those places when it's a likely lose. But 
it'll it gets less likely to lose and less likely and less likely the more it gets invested in you know can i also ask how did the rise of trump in the republican party impact your views on the gop and how did it impact your choice to write this book well, it's so interesting because I started this book before Trump even existed as a can. You know, I started, mm -hmm. I wrote the proposal for this book in 2014 because I could see it. And part oh. of the reason I could see it is because I grew up in this Southern white culture for women. Mm -hmm. And that's been the missing piece of the puzzle, I think, in connecting kind of the racial efforts with this like religious piece. Um, and they they seem very separate unless you know that part and then you can kind of see the bridge. Um, mm. And so started doing research and stuff into that. And I didn't know if the story would be, you know, the GOP made those decisions and now it's back. It's backed itself into a corner, so to speak. Like it's going to win big in a, these places, but it's, it's it'll lose the country. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if. A woman on the ticket. Should that happen? You know, people just, you know, people don't want to believe that. Um, and I get it because it's really hard to wrap your head around, you know. Um, but it isn't the that old fashioned kind of sexism of like, oh, woman, she's too frail to make these decisions. It's not that. It's this long term distrust and following the heels of an African-American man winning. I mean, you have to remember that in the South, in some pockets of the South, the idea that o Obama would win just is so foreign because mm -hmm. they've never seen that. Yep. And so when it does, it really, for some people, maybe it's like, okay. And, you know, they're surprised, but it, it doesn't create a backlash. But in others, it really was like a, a siren call um, because it's just so unfamiliar to them. And, you know, I'm, I'm I'm digging deep into my empathy right now, right? Um, <laughs> but they have been very they, empathetic on this, actually. <laughs> well, it's like I know some, and uh, and it's not that they're really af afraid necessarily of like Obama. It's just that it's it's just like when you know the Supreme Court you know rules in favor of gay marriage. I mean, there are pockets in the South and across the country where. They just couldn't believe that because everyone around them is of the same or, or is like minded on the issue and thinks it's wrong or, you know, their church is kind of like this sacred canopy around the community. And so they just don't realize the diversity that is there. And it just seems so radical. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there is this anxiety that comes with that. Now, you remember when John McCain was doing a town hall and a audience member, you know, asked a question and said, she just did not. This woman said she just did not trust Obama. He was a Muslim and John McCain cuts her off and says, no, ma'am, she, he is not, he is a family man. He is a Christian. He's a good person. We just disagree on issues and just sits her down. It's interesting though that they use Muslim as an insult rather than just oh, yeah. an accuracy. <laughs> right. It's an it's it's an it's an other, right? Yeah. It's an yeah. other. Yep. And so because Christianity is an identity for them. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's their identity. Absolutely it an identity for them. Um absolutely. Just looking ahead to twenty twenty, there's been some speculation about whether or not Texas will turn blue and 
you know, there's conversations about, you know, the GOP moving so far to the right that that perhaps will limit their voting bloc moving forward as the country becomes more diverse. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I mean, it, it comes down to demographics. I mean, Texas has, of course, the largest, you know, Latinx community, you know, Latino community, um, immigrant community of these states. And so it's not just this kind of black, white binary. And for a long time, you had kind of, you know, the Republican Party, you know, pulling a lot of Latino voters. I mean, yep. there's talks under George Bush about an amnesty plan. I mean, but the Catholic connection was really strong. And so they were mm -hmm. a lot of it had to do with country of origin. Um, if you're Latino, um, it's complicated, but we really see those attitudes shifting in reaction to Trump um, yeah. towards the Democratic Party. And if that's the case, then it's just a it's just a matter of time before Texas turns blue. Yeah. It really is just their straight demographics. Now, in other pockets of the South, you know, places like Virginia, because you've got northern Virginia, which is basically Washington, D.C., and such high population numbers, so lean Democratic, um, very different from the rest of Virginia. So Virginia, quite possibly. Um, you know, I do think Stacey Abrams built an enormous infrastructure in Georgia. Um, it's very possible. It's very close. Mm. Florida, I was somewhat optimistic about after Andrew Gillum barely lost in the 2018 midterms, but there I'm hesitant now because the voter registration numbers in Florida are really trending Republican. Mm -hmm. um, but I should say, because it's important is that there's still such a large percentage of the American people that don't vote at all. Mm -hmm. That if you, it, it's anybody's game, you know? Yeah. If you get the non-voters, right, it, it, it almost any state could become kind of purple. But you have to have an infrastructure to do that. I mean, that's the consequence of one-party politics. And the South has been that. Yeah. Whether it was Democrat one party or then flipped to Republican one party is the other party just, you know, wanes. And you don't have county, you know, meetings and you don't have good get out the votes to all of that is really, really important. And so, you know, Republicans knew that when they were trying to flip the South and did it. Democrats have to do it now, too. And whether they win or lose like a Stacey Abrams or a Beto, you know, the infrastructure they build running is critical. Mm -hmm. The Republicans don't have a path to the White House, though, really, if they lose Texas. They do not. I'm telling you, they do not. They do not. It's. I mean, that's why, like, all eyes on Texas, mm -hmm. you know? And it's also why, I mean, Democrats can sometimes be, you know, people are so upset about Trump, which I completely understand. But, it, you know, one candidate is not going to solve it, you know? I mean, people like Beto have to be willing to run and lose yep. in order to build it, you know? And that it that long game is a really important way to look at it. So mm -hmm. I'll tell y'all one other crazy statistic. In 2016, the number of states in which the third party vote outnumbered 
the difference between Clinton and Trump. Either way, whether Trump won the state or Clinton, but the it was so close that the third party vote is bigger than that. It would have affected it, right? Mm-hmm. 13 mm-hmm. states, 155 electoral votes. Wow. Right? And yeah. so now that third party, you know, the reason people don't kind of talk about it, I think, is because, you know, some people were voting third party because they didn't like Trump and some people were voting third party because they didn't like Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. Who knows how it would have gone. Yeah. But it's a good reminder that, you know, a protest vote yeah. in moments like these is really uh is really not helpful no although i think a lot of those votes might have just been toby writing in to vote for nixon so that might explain some <laughs> of them i think a lot of them were write-ins for bernie <laughs> yes they were i mean um and a lot of his supporters you know voted for clinton too but a lot of them were for bernie it's just that i mean that's even close i mean those numbers are way more um are way higher than in 2000 when it was razor thin, you know, election. I mean, 2016, the protest vote. Um, and I get it. I mean, I, I get it, but it's, you know, we either need to have a multi-party system or deal with the fact that we don't, you know? Yeah. I, it, it will you know, be interesting. One more question that I, sure. I want to ask because yeah. you are the sort of head of the Blair center southern politics and it's not really about southern politics because southern politics almost seems like it's block voting what is the ideal type of voter that is gettable by either of the parties if you look at your statistics Hmm. well on the republican side i guess like i mean Maybe like an independent that you could swing Republican, I guess, I would say is, you know, someone who feels like there's just so much change happening so fast. Someone who feels like, you know, oftentimes maybe it's an independent, but kind of, or libertarian leaning kind of white male, maybe religious who just feels like anxious about the future that comes maybe they're not specifically you know expressing this kind of racial resentment because if you are you're voting you know for trump mm-hmm. i mean our numbers bear that out. on the democratic side i think that you know politics is always local so in the south if people need to be given permission to split ticket vote you need, people don't want to feel criticized and insulted if they voted for Trump. So a Democratic candidate that says, look, you know, he said things that you might have, you know, thought were good ideas, but he hasn't done any of those things. And it was kind of, you know, he's inflamed this stuff. And I, you know, if I were you, I completely understand why you might have gone that way in 2016. But you don't have to become a Democrat. You don't have to become any party, but you should give somebody else a shot. It's like, Mm -hmm. There is a sense that, you know, the insult stuff just, you know, entrenches. But that, that kind of person, would they have a, could they possibly have a high modern sexism score? Could they? Yeah. They can have a high modern sexism score if the Democratic candidate is not it's a Joe woman. Joe Biden. 
<laughs> well, and I will say this. I, I want to I actually want to give a nuance to that. It's mm -hmm. so when we look at racial resentment scores, which is also this kind of like people need to get over race, denial of institutional racism, African-Americans have gotten enough, like, you know, um, there's 30 percent of people who had a racial resentment, you know, high score who still voted for Obama oh, okay. in 2012 and 2008. And what happened is that they somehow disassociate those attitudes from Obama as the individual. Right. So maybe they have those ideas about race, but like they just kind of see Obama in a different category of some sort. When you look at the modern sexist attitudes, if you hold those, you did not vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. It's that direct. Like they definitely see her as a feminist. Yeah. Right. So when you look at people like Elizabeth Warren, what the more Elizabeth Warren talks about and kind of plays this or frames herself as a teacher, you know, she's kind of like the really tough teacher you had in school who loves you and wants you to succeed, but she's like really hard on you. And she's kind of like the super organized, got a binder of plans for every single problem, kind of overachiever mom. Like those tropes, we understand. Those tropes don't feel as threatening, right? And so to some degree, you can pick off a, some, a percentage of folks who might hold those attitudes, but somehow are not going to quite apply them to you. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, and so I see those numbers. And it's sad that like a woman running has to like disassociate herself from feminism to run. But, um, you know, Hillary Clinton did an amazing thing by kind of pushing us past the women can't be commander in chief. Is that was always the question. Nobody's asking that now of any mm -hmm. of the women candidates. She pushes past that. But there's a second kind of, you know, version of the modern of sexism that comes in. And now how you kind of dance around that so people give you a chance is complicated. Um, it's doable. But you got to recognize it exists. I don't know anyone else who measures it. Right. Mm. You have to recognize it exists um, first and that it exists among women, too. And, and do you think the 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 part about women, or just just there's, because there's a lot about because I I you know lo looked at some um, southern strategy books before, and I never had this long section about southern white women and why they're distinct. Do you think mm -hmm. this is the major um, attack on the the suburban uh, traditional the suburban historiography in this in this sense because it it makes it seem like this is really a traditionalist very authentically southern feeling you know i i didn't i didn't um write it thinking it was like at, in that spirit like it's an attack on kind of the suburban thing mm -hmm. um what happens is that if you look at the number of people who are political scientists who write about who are who are women who you know study southern politics and are women the number is really 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 small mm. so like when we gather the people who are specialists in southern politics it's almost all men and when they run their statistical models 
right? Gender is rarely significant. So like all social science, if the model, if the variable is not significant, people don't really talk about it that much. And I remember sitting one day looking at a presentation. I thought, why is gender not significant? Like gender is always significant in almost everything. And it's the fact that it's not, which means that women are just as conservative as men in the South. That's kind of was like hiding in plain sight, right? And then on the other hand, you have a lot of the historians that have written about women's history and Southern women's history, and they've been writing about the path-breaking people, the groups of women who did fight lynching reform, you know, did push for lynching reform, or the women who, you know, did take up the union cause or something. You know, they're, they're writing those stories. Yeah. Um, and so they're just this kind of this hole in the scholarship. And I would argue in terms of how that interacts with the suburban strategy is is suburbs mean one thing in certain and areas they and they thing. mean something else they mean something else yeah they really do and so kind of an interaction between suburban and is it a suburban household with a homemaker and how does that person feel about women's rights and women's equality that is probably going to get you somewhere and like, it's really it, difficult, isn't it, for, for them, really. for, especially with historians, some of them who are progressive historians, to really feel that women actually do see themselves actualized in this traditional um, male and female relationship that, that persists in the South. I, I think it is so hard to see. I think it's hard for women who live in it to see it sometimes, too. But I will tell you that the reason it, it the reason it's so pervasive is because, you know, we just don't have the institutional support in the South in a lot of places for like there to be two working parents. You know, I see I've, I've had friends my own age, my own cohort who are supremely talented people who just, you know, all the meetings at the schools are in the middle of the day. The kids have to get out at three. They just cannot make it work. And so when they financially don't have to, you know, they drop out of the workforce. Uh, and then there's a culture that kind of picks that up and really makes that okay and says that that is, you know, right and better. And it's kind of the the old mom wars, you know, the people used to stay-at-home moms or working moms. It's 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 definitely um, a huge thing still in the South, and it is got a political, a really serious political component to it. Mm -hmm. In terms of the suburban strategy and how that works, you know, I'm always I'm a big believer in like the truth is always in the middle. It's never simple. Mm -hmm. They both the both things I think are probably there and important. You know, I do. I think that it is nuanced and complicated. And this book is very, you know, this is a broad kind of pan back, you know, um, generalist thing. So has gender been considered within the suburban kind of story? It doesn't seem like it has. It. Right. Mm. I haven't. I will say this also. This is really important. The, the data that most political scientists and people who work on Southern politics has had to work with is called the American National Election Survey data out of Michigan. It's the only continuous since 1948. 
-hmm. And it's amazing what they do. But their southern samples are really small. And and that is not their fault. It's not what, I mean, they're doing a national sample. And, and getting a southern sample is really expensive, particularly if you want to get the rural south. And that is what we had for this book. Mm. And so whereas you might have a year in the American National Election Survey where you've got once you look at people who were, you know, voted and you look at like, you know, white women voters, you might have less than 200 people that you're looking at, maybe even smaller than that. Um, and that's because the data gathering is so expensive. So we've used the resources we have to try to get a more robust sample of the South so that we can dig into some of that. You know, because there really are important things in there that affect the whole country, you know. And so that to me is this other kind of side contribution of the book. It, and it, it isn't that, that people who are writing about things are ignoring it on purpose. The data literally isn't there, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's a, that's a big piece of the story, too. So they're, they're in good faith writing with what they have. Um, but you don't know what you're missing until you know what you're missing, right? And yeah. Southern white women and their political attitudes is just a massive hole in the field. Um, well, Angie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fantastic. And th thank you, Toby. Um, it's been so brilliant being able to listen to you both uh, answer and ask such interesting questions. Um, we are uh, at the end of this episode, but there are other episodes you can listen to of Impressions of America, both Impressions of America and Impressions of America Politics. So uh, please look out uh, for previous episodes on that and look out for other episodes in the near future. Um, Angie, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Great questions. And Toby, thank you as always. Yeah, this was really, really intriguing. Yeah. Right. From Angie, Toby and myself, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.